You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. So let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you need a Bible, the ushers are in the aisle. And I want you to find your way to Genesis chapter 3. The title of the message is The Fall of Man Part 2. Last week we looked at the fall of man, all the tragic fall. And uh, we're going through the book of Genesis verse by verse. Uh, Been a fascinating study. And I would say this, Genesis chapter 3 is arguably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. It tells us why the world is the way that it is. It tells us why this this world is so beautiful and also so evil. Why it is so kind and why it is so cruel. Why there are good things happening. Uh, uh, You see beautiful acts of love and random acts of kindness and parents with children and little kids playing and you say oh what a beautiful world and you also see countries invading ukraine and bombing innocent people and and genesis 3 gives us an understanding of why the world is in the shape that it is Uh, so a very important chapter God created a perfect world for Adam and Eve. Uh, We read that uh, Adam and Eve were the culmination, the crescendo of God's creation. In six days, God spoke the universe into existence. And the cosmogony of the Bible is better than any other uh, theory of how the universe began because the cosmogony of the Bible shows that God, this being, is outside of time, space, and matter. And this, this God who is outside of time, space, and matter spoke time, space, and matter into existence. It is the only real cosmogony that deals with the absolute origin of creation. There's a God who's outside of time, space, and matter, who spoke time, space, and matter into existence. And time, space, and matter are a continuum. All of them had to come into existence at the same time. And the Bible reveals God did that. And in six days, he made this beautiful universe. And and we looked at the science of all that as we studied that. And we saw the crescendo of his creation was man, man. God gave the entire earth to man. He said, rule over it, have dominion. But you I've created for myself. I want to have fellowship with you. And in order to have this fellowship, God created the Garden of Eden. We looked at it. Oh, I love a beautiful garden. Imagine a garden created by God. Oh, man. It was glorious. And it wasn't a backyard garden. It was a garden the size of a country, the size of a continent. And in this garden, every garden has to have a water feature, right? In this garden, there was a massive water feature, a waterhead that actually flowed into four rivers, two of them being the Euphrates and the Tigris, right? Uh, this, I mean, what a garden. And in that garden, every tree that was beautiful, trees that were good for food, trees that were pleasant to the sight, everything man needed. And above all, there God walking and talking with God in the cool of the day. Man created for fellowship. This was the purpose of all that God created. You. God wanting a relationship with you. What is man that you have set your sight on him? When I consider the stars, the moon, the star that you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you would visit him, that you would would want to have this? 
the relationship with us, but this is how much God loves you. This is how much God is interested in you. If we only understood our worth in God's eyes. Now, in order for any relationship to be real, in order for any relationship to be special, in order for any, any relationship to be meaningful, rather that be friends, rather that be lovers, rather that be spouse, husband, and wife, or rather that be a relationship with God, in order for any relationship to be real, there has to be a freedom of choice. The ability to give back love or to withhold love. The, the ability to respond to your lover or to ignore your lover. The ability to pursue the one who cares about you or to reject the one who cares about you. There has to be a choice. And God gave this capacity to angels. They had a choice to walk in his ways or not walk in his ways. And God gave this capacity to man. God made you with an incredible ability to be able to comprehend what is the width, what is the depth, what is the height, what is the breadth of God's love for you. He gave you an incredible IQ, incredible discernment to be able to comprehend his love for you. And then he also gave Adam and Eve a choice to walk with him or not walk with him. And the, the, the token, the icon of that choice was a tree called what? The knowledge of good and evil. We looked at that in depth last week. The knowledge of good and evil. God said, oh, I've created all this for you. I want you to understand my great love for you. And they walked in fellowship with him. They experienced God's love personally. He says, now, as a token of my, our love, do not decide for yourself what is good, what is evil. They gained no knowledge of good when they took that, the tree. That wasn't, that's, a, that's misunderstanding the name. God is saying, do not decide. Don't take for yourself the knowledge of good and evil. Let me decide what is good and evil. Why? Because you're not qualified to do so. There's a lot of things we think are right in the world that aren't right. And there's a lot of things that we think are bad and they're actually good. It's, no, it's, it's good that you do. And we need God to decide what is right and what is wrong. God says, as a token of our relationship, let me decide good and evil. And you guys just trust me. What I, and the only prohibition they had was not to partake of that tree. Well, of course, we know Adam and Eve both willfully rebelled against God under the temptation of Satan. And Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan's words over God's words. That's what we looked at last week, the fall of man part one. Today we're going to look at this and go further. And we're going to see they chose to believe Satan's words over God's words. They chose to trust Satan's words over God's words. They chose to obey Satan's words over God's words. And Satan was deceiving them. And Adam and Eve, having rejected God, uh, had something tragic happened to them they became naked oh that doesn't mean they didn't have clothes on no 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 that's not the deal at all what does it mean it means they were clothed with the very glory of God the Bible says that God is light that he dwells in unapproachable light uh, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, that God radiates this glorious Shekinah glory. His brightness is seven times brighter than the noonday sun. He is radiant in glory. And Adam and Eve were sinless, and they radiated the very glory of God, God's spirit upon them, God's spirit in them, and God's radiant glory coming out of them. The moment that they decided for themselves what was good and evil, that glory departed from them. And they realized they were naked. And in their nakedness, they sewed fig leaves together. And uh, Adam and Eve uh, 
just rejected God and now are naked and now they are hiding from God. How tragic. This God that created them to have fellowship with them, they are now hiding from God. And Adam and Eve disobeying God's will, obeying Satan's will, now unknowingly are servants of Satan. And unknowingly, they are now uh, uh, on the wrong team. They're now uh, doing what Satan wants instead of what God wants. Uh, we left off last week in verse 13. I'm going to back up just a little bit to verse 9 uh, to uh, uh, cover some context for where we're going today. Uh, so Genesis 3, verse 9, if you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. Follow along as I read. Uh, Adam and Eve are now naked. They're hiding, right? They're hiding from God. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Yahweh Elohim calls to God, to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? And oh, how I would have loved to heard the voice inflection of God. As he cries out with a broken heart, my son, where are you? What happened? What did, what, what? Adam, where are you? Not the voice of an arresting officer, but the, the voice of a brokenhearted God. Uh, look, what, look what he says. Adam, where are you? In uh, verse 10, so Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? We looked at this last week. We went over it. What was God looking for? Why is God asking? Does he not know where Adam is? Does he not know what happened? No, God is omniscient. He knows all things. And whenever God asks a question, it's never for his sake. It's always for our sake. Uh, Dave, why did you talk to your wife that way? Uh, that's not for his knowledge. He's asking me that I might think of it, right? That I might ponder and so why is God asking, what's he looking for in Adam? Adam, do you care? Do you even care? You see, what we have here is the broken heart of creator God. What we have here is the broken heart of God. Uh, Adam, do you even care? Uh, do you even? And look at Adam's response. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. Oh, notice what happens here. Is Adam in tune with God's broken heart? He's oblivious. And what does he do? He does two things. Did you see it? He does two things. What does he do? Number one, he blames. Who does he blame? He blames God, the woman you gave me. Lord, everything was going good <laughs> till she came around. What did you even bring her to me for? Lord, it was just you and me. Remember it was just you and me? Crazy. He blames. Not only does he blame God, but he also blames Eve. She did it. And she... And it's so interesting to me. Uh, I see this even today. People will live their lives in disobedience to God. They'll do stupid things. And then they'll say, I don't know why God's making me go through all this. <laughs> and they blame God for their messed up life. Uh, buddy, um, it's not God. But we're prone to do this. He blames. The other thing he does is what does he do? He blames and what else does he do? Do you see it? The woman that you gave me, she took and I ate. He blames and he justifies. Blames and justifies. If you want to look at any argument you ever have with someone you love, you will find yourself doing these two things 
blaming and justifying. Far better, instead of blaming, to just confess your sins. And instead of justifying, just saying, please help me, I'm sorry. Do you know why we blame and do you know why we justify? We're running late. We get there late. We don't say, you know what? I'm such a sloth. I woke up late. I can't tell time. We don't say that. We get there and we say, traffic was really bad. Right? We blame and we justify. Do you know why we justify? Because the biggest need we have in life is justification. We are messed up and we know it. And we have this internal longing to be justified. Jesus came to do one thing, to justify you. To make you just as if you had never sinned. To forgive you of all of your sin and to make you right. And it is a folly to try to justify yourself. Don't do it when the temptation comes. Adam here, totally oblivious to the broken heart of God. And he just pours salt in God's wounds, right? Uh, Lord, the woman you gave me. Verse 13. uh, Seeing that Adam is totally insensitive to God, God now turns to the woman. uh, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She does the exact same thing, doesn't she? She blames and justifies. Why did God ask Eve? Same thing. Hey, Eve, do you even care? Do you even understand? Do you even respond? Do you ever just... Uh, And the answer is... No. Totally oblivious to the heart of God. God's heart is grieved by Adam and Eve... But Adam and Eve have no concept that God is hurting. No concept of what they've done to God. Why? Why? Why are they so clueless? Why are they so tone deaf to God? Why can't they see the broken heart of God? Why? Here's why. We covered it last week. It's so important. I wanted to review it again this week. It's because they are spiritually dead. And this is what it looks like to be spiritually dead. You have no concept of the love of God or the heart of God or the mind of God. You are spiritually dead and unable to understand his heart. Tragic. Tragic to look at. Tragic to see. Uh, No concept that they're hurting God. They are just self-serving. No heart for God. No heart for each other. They throw God under the bus. And they throw each other under the bus. And this is who we are. Apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ. We are spiritually dead. We are self-seeking. We will not come to God. The Bible makes this very clear. Over and over and over again. I have a verse for you in Romans. Romans 3 verse 10. Let me hear you read this. Uh, A a unified thundering voice. Let me hear you. As it is written. There is none righteous. No not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Does that need any commentary? It's pretty self explanatory. There is none righteous. No not one. In another scripture, the Bible says, there is not a righteous man on the earth. No, not one. There is not a righteous man on the earth who does not sin. No, not one. There is none who seek after God. And why? Because we're spiritually dead. But I have good news. We don't seek God, but God seeks us. That is what he is doing with Adam and Eve. And that is what he is doing in our lives as well. 
God beckons us to come to him. God beckons us to understand his love for him. God beckons us to look at the cross of Jesus Christ to understand how much he loves us. God so loved us that God himself would become a man empty himself of all of his glory and become a man and live his life as a poor man, a regular man and go to a cross to take all of our shame and sin and punishment on his own back as he was whipped with a cat of nine tails and scourged and then crucified on a cross paying the punishment of our sin so that we don't have to and giving us his righteousness as a free gift that we might understand his love. God pursues us. He points us to the cross and then he gives us the faith to believe. Ephesians tells us that even our faith is a gift from God. He gives us our faith to believe that we might understand. And then he does something miraculous. He gives us the power to be born again. And the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave, he puts upon us and he resurrects us spiritually and gives us new life. It's called being born again. Uh, and it is only by the power of Jesus Christ. There was a pastor in Jesus' day that came to Jesus and he said, hey, I know that you must be a man from God. You do these incredible miracles. Uh, tell me, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, buddy, forget about going to heaven. He said, unless a man is born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. You can't even perceive that it, is, it exists. And that's John chapter 3, uh, the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, powerful, right? Uh, Jesus says, hey, look, you've got to be born again. And so uh, I'm so thankful you are here today because uh, God has called you. And you are somewhere in this process. You either already responded and he's given you the ability and the power to be born again, or he's beckoning you to that very point right now. But I want you to see who we are apart from his calling. Uh, we're like Adam and Eve, selfish, uh, self-serving, uh, and will not come and respond to God. And this is man's state. We see how lost he is. And God will now reveal his redemptive plan to deal with Adam and Eve's sinful rebellion. God is sovereign, and he had a plan. And even though he gave Adam and Eve free choice to respond to his love or reject his love, uh, he is not done with them. He is not done with us. And uh, look what he does. God is going to speak now. He, he, uh, he sees, uh, he's proven to us that Adam and Eve are spiritually dead. They cannot respond properly to God. They're hiding from God. They don't understand his heart. God is now going to implement his plan of redemption. And he's going to do uh, four different things. He's going to speak first to the serpent. He's then going to speak to Satan. He's then going to speak to the woman. And lastly, he's going to speak to Adam. And in this, we see a progression He's going to speak to the serpent, the physical animal first, and that is the least, you know, it's the least important. It's just an animal. But he's going to speak to the animal. We'll see why in just a minute. Then he's going to speak to Satan, the spirit that possessed the animal. But he's not very important to God. He's separated from God. God has no fellowship with him, no relationship with him. He's not very important. He moves from him, he moves to the woman. And from the woman, he moves to the man because it was his responsibility to make sure this didn't happen. And so we see an order of what God is doing here as he unveils his plan of redemption to deal with man's sinful rebellion. Let's look at what God does. Verse uh, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, that's to the physical animal. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. 
Uh, God there puts all animals into two categories. Cattle, domesticated animals. Beast of the field, wild beast. Uh, you are cursed more than all of the animal kingdom. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. What is God doing here? Why in the world is he talking to an animal? Why in the world is, is, is God even making this an issue? Uh, did the animal have any choice in this whole thing? No, Satan just possessed this animal. Uh, the animal is just an animal, right? It's not capable of more than that. And yet God chooses to do this. God's curse upon the, the serpent uh, is something powerful God is trying to do, trying to show us. Uh, the serpent was once a beautiful creature. We know a serpent as a snake. That's how we view it. That's how we understand it. But the serpent was once a beautiful creature. This was the creature out of all the animals that Satan chose to possess to speak to Adam and Eve. By the way, how did Satan speak to Adam and Eve through the serpent? What, did the serpent actually talk? perhaps but it was Satan's words not the serpent's words and perhaps he just spoke at the, at the speed of thought just putting these thoughts into his mind has God really said is God holding back on you you could be like God uh, maybe that was all just <coughs> It wasn't the serpent speaking, it was Satan. And Satan speaks in a lot of different ways. Through college professors, through your ego, through your pride, he still speaks. And in this time, he spoke through the serpent. And the serpent at that time was the shining one. He was, it was a glorious creature. Uh, the serpent uh, stood on hind legs, stood upright. It was a glorious creature. Uh, uh, the book of Revelation gives some insight into this. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, look at this verse. Let me hear you read this. Uh, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Uh, this verse in context, after the seven-year tribulation period, God, Jesus, Jesus commands an angel and says, bind him. And he binds Satan for a thousand years with just a word. Jesus is omnipotent. He has all power. But here what I want you to see in this, uh, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old. It's interesting, in every culture, there's folk, folklore of dragons. Where did that come from? Well, that was the serpent before the fall. He was a glorious creature, once a beautiful creature, now vile and brought low. Why? Why? Well, I want you to know this. Snakes are forever a symbolic reminder to humans of Satan's ultimate end. God's impending judgment upon, Sa upon Satan is revealed in the physical creature of a snake. This once beautiful creature is now vile and disgusting. And every sane person sees a snake and goes, <laughs> right? Ooh, they just kind of repulse us. And they're low, they're vile. He says, you will eat dust, right? Uh, snakes don't eat dust. Uh, I want you to know, uh, by the way, in this passage, are your words kind of indented in your Bible and extra margin and it's kind of spaced differently as you read this? Do you know why that is? Because it's poetry. Anytime you see those words indented with extra margin, it's because it's poetry. God is speaking poetically here. It's a Hebrew poetry. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's idiomatic. No, no, no. It's literal. It's real. Uh, but this is a poetic uh, 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 words from God. 
And uh, eating dust is, is figurative. It means uh, being uh, defeated. Uh, when we tell someone, eat my dust, it means you're in last place, right? Uh, and what he's saying is, what he's giving to us is a symbolic reminder of Satan's ultimate end. And throughout the millennial kingdom, the serpent will always be a reminder to us of Satan's utter end. He'll be brought down to nothing. Uh, Isaiah uh, would uh, amplify this more and reveal this more. Uh, look at this verse on your screen. This is Isaiah 14, a pretty uh, famous passage about Lucifer. Uh, let me hear you read this in a unified voice. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Let's look at this for a moment. Loose, no, go back. Go back. Oh, thank you. Uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Lucifer means illuminated one. It's where we get our English word lucent. Uh, he was once a beautiful creature. He's now fallen. He was a cherub that covered the throne of God. You're now cut down to the ground. You who weakened the nations. Why? Because he said in his heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God, who are they? The angels, all of God's creation. I will be worshipped by them. I'll be better than them. Let's go on the rest of the verse. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Oh my goodness. God says, no, you won't. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Um, look at this here for a moment. Uh, I will sit on the mount of the congregation. Two kinds of shepherds, by the way. Those who want to feed the sheep and those who want to eat the sheep. Those who want to build up the sheep and those who want to sit on the sheep and control the sheep and elevate themselves. Two kinds of leaders in the world, those who want to make you the best you can be and those who want to use you to make themselves the best they can be. Two kinds of pastors, those who use the church to propel themselves and those who deny themselves to propel the sheep and to lift up the sheep. Jesus was a shepherd who put himself on the bottom to lift up the sheep. Jesus was the shepherd who put himself on the cross to glorify and to exalt and to save and to redeem the sheep. Satan is the exact opposite. Satan says, I want to sit on the congregation. I want to be on the top of the pyramid. Jesus has the pyramid go this way and he's lifting it up. Two kinds of, of, of shepherds. Let's go on the rest of the verse. Uh, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble and who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities and who did not open the house of his prisoners? Do you understand what Isaiah is saying? Satan is going to be stripped of all his power of all of his gifting and he's going to be reduced to nothing and everyone is going to look at him and say are you kidding me you are the little runt that caused such havoc on this world are you kidding me you why did we ever fall for your deceptions you the one who made the 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 
beautiful earth, a wilderness, a barren desert, who brought everything into rubble. You, the one who destroyed cities. And look at this, who did not open the house of his prisoners. If you've ever watched someone bound by sin, there could not be a better description. If you've ever seen someone who's addicted, you could not have a better description. What does Satan do? He says, oh, party. Have a few drinks. Have this drug. And you take it. And it makes you feel amazing. And it makes all your problems go away. And you're like, this is great, man. And so you come back to it. And next thing you know, you're addicted. And now the very thing that you went to to make you feel better is now destroying every sector of your life. And what does Satan do? Does he have mercy on your soul and say, oh, well, I'll free you from that addiction? No, he will not open the doors of the prison. What a cruel being. He has no care for you. Only wants to deceive you, to get you your life messed up and destroyed, to take you away so that you come out of God's kingdom and into his kingdom so he can sit on you and rule over you. And that's what he has done to Adam and Eve. Oh, how tragic. Jesus, on the other hand, the scripture tells us, Isaiah, he came to open the doors of the prison and to set the captives free and to take us from the bondage of sin into the glorious liberty of the children of light. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a shepherd. I'm so thankful for him. He is amazing. This is what he does. This is who he is. Uh, This is his work. Uh, 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 What an amazing amazing savior and here this serpent may you always remember it every time you serpent you see a a serpent a snake and you go worthless creature and may you this is a this is like a picture this is like a symbolic reminder this is what's coming to the judgment of satan now look what god does god moves after cursing the physical serpent god turns to the spiritual serpent in verse 15 Okay, four people God's talking to here, right? First, the physical serpent, the actual animal. Now he speaks to Satan. Look what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. What is enmity? That's a word we don't use a lot. What does it mean? Pardon me? Not envy, no. Hostility. Conflict, division. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, This is such a powerful verse, and it is so God. God is able to say so much in all of his wisdom and prowess. He is so far above us. He can say so much in one sentence, and he has here. This is like a zip file that needs to just be unpacked and really understood. Uh, This is a powerful verse. What God is saying here is, listen, God reveals that Satan has not won. And that he will be completely defeated. And that Satan's head will be crushed by Jesus on the cross. The head means the authority or the power. Look at this. I will put enmity, division between you, Satan, and the woman. And between you, Satan, your seed, your children, and her seed, her children. Then he goes into singular. He, singular, shall bruise. That word could be crush. It would be better translated crush. He shall crush your head. A fatal blow. And you shall crush his heel. Here we see it goes from speaking of Eve and all of her children to Eve and one specific child. The seed of a woman. Here we have what Bible scholars call the protevangelium. 
Protoevangelium, a big word, a Latin word, simply means this. First gospel. First mention of the good news. Prote, where we get our word prototype, meaning first. Evangelium, meaning evangelism, meaning good news, meaning the message of the cross. Uh, a prote evangelium, the first gospel here in the book of Genesis. There is going to be one, a seed of the woman, a, a, an obscure prophecy, if you will. The first prophecy in the Bible of the virgin birth. The women don't have the seed. The man has the seed. The woman has the egg. Uh, and there's going to be a seed of a woman, a virgin birth, who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And on the cross, Jesus Christ crushed the head, the authority of Satan. We looked at it last week. Satan's power over man was God's law. Getting, getting Adam and Eve to go against God's law, to break God's law, that is what caused their spiritual demise, right? And his power is God's law broken. That's why he's always trying to get us to tempt God's law. But Jesus fulfilled all of the law on our behalf. And now Satan is powerless over us. His head has been crushed. We looked at that verse in Colossians last week. This is review. Uh, Jesus triumphed. Over all principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them on the cross, triumphing over them on the cross. He disarmed principalities and powers, uh, uh, Colossians tells us. How so? What did he do? Well, he went to the cross and he fulfilled all of God's word on our behalf. What does that mean? It means now when I sin and Satan goes, oh, you sin, you blew it, you're in trouble, you're going to get the judgment of God. God says, no, he's not. That has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ on his behalf. And so here on the cross, Jesus, we learn he's going to smash the head of Satan. Oh, how incredible. Uh, and here we get this prelude. We get this prophecy of the virgin birth, the seed of the woman. A bit obscure, but the first prophecy in the Bible. Uh, God will later make that obscure prophecy even more crystal clear. Uh, he did so in Isaiah 714. It's on all of your Christmas cards, right? Uh, here it is again on your screens as well. Uh, let me hear you read this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Hebrew God is El, Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin will conceive and it won't be any birth. It will be God dwelling among us. And here we see the Protoevangelium in Genesis 3. Uh, he says, Satan, you will strike, you will crush his heel. Uh, when did that happen? How did that happen? Well, in numerous ways. Satan repeatedly attempted to defeat Jesus. He struck at his heel. He tried to crush Jesus' heel. How did he do it? Well, do you remember when Jesus was born and Herod finds out where Jesus was born, what does Herod do? Kills all the baby boys. What is going on? Satan is striking at the heels of the Messiah. Jesus begins his ministry. What does Satan do? He goes into the wilderness to fast and Satan tempts him to disobey God's word. Turn these stones into bread. Use your divine power for your own benefit. If Jesus did that, he no longer could be our kinsman redeemer because he didn't live his life like a regular man. And so trying to get him to, to use his divine power for his personal gain, Jesus never did that. Uh, and Jesus, what was happening? Satan was striking at the Messiah's heel. Satan, in 
indwells one of Jesus' disciples. His name? Judas. He gets him to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Betray him with a kiss. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy the Messiah. What is, what's happening? He's striking at his heel. He then demonically energizes the soldiers who Jesus has taken over to. And they put a bag over Jesus' head and they punch him in the face. Imagine that happening. If I see someone hitting me, I pull back, right? We, we, you know. He couldn't do that. His face was covered. You can break your ankle stepping off a curb not knowing it's there. Right? He couldn't, he didn't know it was coming. Prophesy, who hit you? Can you imagine the pain of being hit just blind? What was happening? Satan was striking, trying to crush the heel of the Messiah. Demonic inspiration as they begin to whip him with the cat of nine tails, just unleashing un unimaginable cruelty. They then crown him with a crown of thorns, mock him in a mock robe, put a reed in his hand, say, oh, hail the king of the Jews, and mocking him. What was happening? Satan was striking at the heel of the Messiah. They then somehow energizes the Jewish people. And they all cry out as Pilate is trying to absolve him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. What's happening? Satan is striking at the heels of Messiah. And they crucify him and put him on the cross. And Satan rejoiced and thought he killed the Messiah. Only to learn it was God's whole plan. And Jesus said on the cross, now it is finished, and today you'll be with me in paradise. And Satan realized, oh my gosh, he's triumphed over me again. And there, all of it was a picture of the enemy striking at the heels of the Messiah. And oh, it was painful. Oh, he suffered. Uh, but it was all God's plan. Uh, on the cross, Jesus crushed Satan's head. I want you to know, if you are in Jesus Christ, the best that Satan can do is strike at your heel. That is the best he can do. And he does a good job out of it, at it. Oh, Dave, you, th you call yourself a Christian? You call yourself a pastor? And then you act like that? Are you kidding me? You're a worthless blank, blank, blank. <laughs> Why don't you just eat crud and die? What's he doing? Striking at my heel. And what is our response? Jesus, the enemy is striking at my heel. Will you deal with him? He's condemning me of sin. You have forgiven me of all of my sin and made me righteous. Lord, thank you. Uh, oh, I love the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Have you seen it? Do you remember that, that part? One of my favorite part in the movie by far, my favorite part in the movie, was when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he's praying. He's in t total anguish. He knows the cross is at hand. And he is sweating great drops of blood. And he's praying, if it is possible, any other way. Nevertheless, not my will. You let your will be done. Uh, if it's possible, let us come back. And, and he's praying and he's in anguish. And as he's praying, he sees in the corner of his eye this snake slithering in the grass. And he stays focused on his prayer. And he just keeps focused as the serpent is slithering there in the grass. And Jesus in the movie goes. And just crushes the head of the serpent. 
Mel Gibson, really profound, putting that in the movie, uh, coming us back to here to Genesis. This is exactly the picture of what was happening on the cross. Just amazing to consider. Uh, Jesus fulfilled every commandment in the Bible perfectly on our behalf. And Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness. Uh, Satan may snap at our heels, uh, but we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And may we bathe in that, man. May we bathe in that. Uh, now, uh, Satan has been crushed by Jesus on the cross. But I want you to know something. The fullness of this has not been fulfilled yet. For here we still see today, don't we? Satan still has power. He still has sway in this world. He still is accusing you and me. And sometimes we believe his is his condemnation, right? Uh, and there's a sway on the whole world that he's very active. He's, he's doing this work. Yeah, for sure. Well, when will this happen? When will this be ultimately fulfilled? Well, I have good news. It will be. Uh, Paul acknowledged in Romans that this hasn't been fulfilled yet. Romans, by the way, an actual, uh, just a, an inspired treaty of, 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 of Christian theology. I mean, just an amazing book to read. Paul finishes the book of Romans with this, this verse, on Romans 16. Uh, let me hear you read this. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul acknowledged to the church in Rome, yeah, the, there's still some problems there that we're dealing with. Uh, problems from the enemy, but uh, uh, soon, soon and very soon, the king of kings will crush the head of Satan. Uh, I, I find this fascinating, by the way, the Bible. Look at this. The God of peace, the God of peace will crush Satan's head? That sounds like an oxymoron, right? The God of peace will crush Satan's head? Exactly. This is the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. If you want to be a peacemaker, you have to squash evil. You have to deal with it. And here he says, the God of peace will crush the enemy's head so that peace can rule and reign. And uh, uh, the day is coming, and I long for the day. Uh, you want to see where it happens? Uh, here it is. This is where Satan is crushed completely. Revelation chapter 20. Um, uh, the beginning of the Bible. Satan in the Garden of Eden. Deceiving Adam and Eve. The end of the Bible. Satan being crushed by the Messiah. Look at this. Uh, the devil. Read this with me. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and that is when this prophecy will be finally fully uh, fulfilled uh, there's a near and far fulfillment it's fulfilled near now with Jesus on the cross it'll be fulfilled, fulfilled ultimately um, let's go back to Genesis let's go back to verse 15 back to the garden do you see what God is doing do you see his plan of redemption in play here uh uh, uh, look what he says. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your seed, between your children, Satan, and her seed. Who are Satan's children? All those who are not born again. Jesus in John uh, chapter 8, 44, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, uh, Jesus was talking to religious leaders who were not born again. And he tells them, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and you do his works. I am of my father and I do his works. Jesus called these religious leaders sons of the devil. They were, uh, they were followers of Satan. And here something magical happens. Something divine happens. God calls us to himself. And when he does, he gives us faith. And then he gives us the ability to be born again. And the moment that we are born again, we are moved from one family to another. We are taken from being enemies of God and now brought into being sons and daughters of God. We're born again. 
And here, this is what God is saying. He's saying, listen, I will take the enmity that is right now between man and me, and I will make that enmity between man and you. Do you see it? Can you grasp it? Uh, let me see if I can unpack it even more. When, when Satan sinned against God, what happened to him? He went from being in God's presence to now being separated from God forever. When the angels sinned, what happened to them? Same thing. They went from being in God's presence to being enemies of God forever. Can Satan be redeemed? No. Can angels be redeemed? No. They are forever separated from God. Now... Satan has made Adam and Eve sin. What does Satan think? Adam and Eve are now what? Separated from God for how long? For eternity. Satan, uh, Revelation 12 tells us that he deceived one third of the angels. There are millions and trillions of angels and he deceived one third of them and they are all now his servants and he sits on top of them. Now Satan thought he had really won. He is proud of himself. He is here going, oh man, this is glorious. Now I've got Adam and Eve and all of the earth, when they populate the earth, all of them will be in a fallen state under my rule. And God says, not so fast. Not so fast. Right now, Adam and Eve are at enmity with who? With God. They're hiding from God. They're rebelling from God. They don't want to be near God. They believe Satan. They didn't believe God. They trusted Satan's word, not God's. They are enemies of God. They are friends of Satan. They are unknowingly hiding from God and doing, making lies about their sin, blaming others. They are just sinning after sinning after sinning. They're servants of Satan and they don't even know it. They are friends of Satan and they don't even know it. And they are enmity with God. And God says, hang on, not so fast. They are not forever separated from me. I want you to know something. You are very unique in all of God's creation. You are very unique like no other in this one way. Only you, only man can sin and still be in fellowship with God. Man is unique. Because of Jesus Christ, man is unique. I can sin and still be a child of God. Satan can't. He sins, separated. Angels, separated. Man is unique because of this right here. Because of what God is doing here in Genesis 3. He's saying, listen. I know you think Adam and Eve have sinned forever and they're going to populate the earth with sinful beings and they're all going to be under your domain. I want you to know something, Satan. I'm going to reduce you to nothing and I'm going to turn the enmity that is with man and me now. I'm going to flip it and I'm going to make that enmity against man and you. Do you know what happens? The moment that you are born again, you become a child of God and an enemy of Satan. And this verse is fulfilled. Do you see it? Do you understand it? Let's read it again. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your children, Satan, and her children. How will he do that? Because there's one child that she has who's going to come and he's going to crush your head and he's going to restore to friendship humans with God. And they're going to be now enmity with you. Prote evangelium. All I can say is, wow, God, you're amazing. 
And instead of man being forever separated from God, like the angels and like Satan, God said, no, 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 I'm going to make a way where grace and mercy will cover them. And even though they sin, they can still be in my presence. And I will still be in friendship with them. And we'll still have fellowship. And I will redeem them. And I will restore them. And I will undo everything that they have done. Oh, my gosh. What an amazing plan. What an amazing God. And uh, just how incredible it is. Uh, uh, Satan had gotten Adam and Eve to believe his words over God's, to trust God's words, Satan's words over God's, to obey Satan's words out of God's, uh, over God's. Adam and Eve were now hiding from God. They were now enmity with God. They were now rebellious foes of God. They were now servants of Satan, didn't even know it. And God says, I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to flip this whole thing back on you. I'm going to reconcile them. I'm going to put enmity between them and you. And now that's exactly what you and I are today if we are in Jesus Christ. We are building the kingdom and we are going against Satan's kingdom and defeating it by the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, I had planned on getting further with you. Uh, what else is new? Uh, I had wanted to look at uh, what God says to the woman and what God says to the man. We'll look at that next week. Let me leave you with one more verse, can I? Uh, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. Let me leave you with verse 21, and we'll take it in context next, next week, but I want you to see this. Uh, verse 21. Read with me, if you will. Let's read it all out loud together. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Let's read it this way. Also for Adam and his wife, Yahweh Elohim made tunics of skin and clothed them. What? Why? You'll remember when Adam and Eve sinned, the glory of God departed from them. Do you remember? And they, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together. Why? In a vain attempt to cover their spiritual nakedness. They tried to cover their spiritual nakedness by the works of their hands. We do the same thing today. We're sinners and we know it. And so we say, well, I'm going to do something good. I'm going to give my clothes to goodwill. Yeah, and I'm going to give that guy five bucks on the corner. Okay, I feel better about myself now. What are we doing? We're covering our spiritual nakedness by the works of our hands. And it makes sense to us. I'm a good person. I think I'm a good person. When Yahweh Elohim comes into our presence, we will hide with that kind of covering. And it will not be enough. And God says, take off that covering. That covering that you made by self-effort. That covering you made by the works of your hands. Take it off. And be clothed with what? Animal skins? What does that mean? Here, this is a further revelation of the Protevangelium. The first gospel. You see, what happened here is uh, we learn from Leviticus how this works. God says, Adam and Eve, you've sinned against me. I told you in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And you did spiritually. But I spared your life. I had mercy on you physically. And I'm going to redeem you. And he brings Adam and Eve. And he says... Put your hands on this animal. And they confess their sins with their hands on this animal's head. Symbolic of what the Bible calls substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary, the animal taking on my sin. Atonement, a covering for my sin. They, he puts their hands on this animal. And now they slit its throat. This was the practice in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve had never seen anything die yet, ever. It was, a, it was the Garden of Eden. And now for the first time, they see blood. They see death. 
they cut their, put their hands on this animal, they confess their sins, and they cut this animal's throat. And that animal squirms and squeals, and they see the horrid reality of death. And they know that's what they deserved. And symbolically, their sins being transferred onto that animal. Jesus, when he came into the world, had a forerunner named John the Baptist. John had never seen Jesus. He was preaching by faith. God had told him the Messiah was going to come. John asked, how will I know when he comes? God, God said, I'll reveal him to you. John is there preaching one day, just like I'm doing right now. And there for the first time, Jesus comes walking from, from afar. And John sees him. John quits preaching. He looks up. He sees the Messiah. And he prophesies. Do you remember what he says? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Taking us all the way back here to the Proto-Evangelium, the, 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 the first gospel here in Genesis. Hebrews tells us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse man's of a sin. It's just symbolic. It's just a picture of what the Messiah will do. And notice what God does here. He puts all the sin of Adam and Eve onto this animal symbolically. And then he clothes them with what? With the very one that died for them's skin. That's a picture of what Jesus does with us. He takes all of our sin upon himself and then he clothes us with what? His own righteousness becomes our clothing. And that radiant glory that was lost when they sin will now come back in our glorified bodies. We will be clothed with the radiant glory of Jesus Christ once again. And we who long for this, uh, uh, the Bible says that he gives us the Holy Spirit right now with a moment we believe as an earnest, as a down payment of the inheritance that is to come. And when he gives us the fullness of the Spirit, the Bible says we will no longer be found naked. Wow. It actually uses those words. We'll be clothed with the radiant glory of his Spirit once again. And we'll live and dwell with him forever. And this is God's plan of redemption. The proto-evangelium. You, Satan, tried to bring enemy between my children and me. I will turn that. I will make them born again, my children again. And that enmity will then be between them and you. And now I send you out into the world as workers of his kingdom. Crushing Satan's kingdom underfoot. And building the kingdom of Jesus Christ as his children, as his servants, as his worshipers. Shall we stand? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.